This morning we're back in First Corinthians. This is Communion Sunday, and we'll be thinking about what the Lord's done for us and believing His promises today. One Corinthians one twenty and twenty one. I'm going to read the text, and then uh, and while we're on this first slide, and then we'll break it down as we go on. So the. On this title slide, I have uh, my version, the entire text. It says here, 1 Corinthians one twenty. where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. I'm citing from the Lexham English Bible. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to do things your way and to provide a way of salvation through your Son, the Messiah, the sent one who came into our world to die for our sins. May we have the boldness to cling to you, preach the gospel, and learn what you've revealed here in your word and believe it and apply it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now in 1 Corinthians 1.20a, first part of the verse, there are three questions. And these are, where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, I mentioned on the slide here, this is probably an allusion to Isaiah 33, 18, where we have very similar wording. And in, in that text, there is a context where it says that the people who trusted man are probably in trouble. Literally, it talks about the scribe, the wise person, debater, the towers, sages, however you want to pronounce it and, and translate it. And in that context, there were people that kept thinking, well, if we just had what other nations had, if we just had something that we don't have, if we just trust Yahweh, then everything will be okay. And so Paul is taking the Greek translation of Isaiah thirty-three eighteen, and there he is applying it to the situation in Corinth. So the world has wise people, sages, experts, debaters, and they impress people who oppose God. Now, even in the ancient world, in Rome, and the places where Paul went, like in Athens, you have people who really believe that rhetoric was more important than everything else. Eloquence was highly regarded. And it's not a sin to be eloquent or to know things, but what the sin is when we trust man rather than trust God. And the idea was that if you could really debate and make a great presentation and people love it, that's enough. That's all you need. But Paul is saying that's not right. You can't trust that. And God is going to confound the wisdom of those who don't believe in him. And so throughout this section, you have terminology that we need to realize Paul is using irony. 
He's refuting the world. He's giving us the truth of the gospel. So I thought it was interesting. I actually went back and looked up Isaiah 33, 18. And in that text, there's a Greek word. I know sometimes Eric gives us little memory devices. This one, she was three times. Poo. But it literally means where. Uh, and it's poo, poo, poo. So I'm going to remember that because poo to the world's wisdom. And it means where. Where's the wise person? The idea is, well, go ahead and trust them. They won't help you. Where's the person who really can write things? The expert. One person translates as experts. Well, fine. They're not going to be smarter than God. Where's the debater? They're, they're opposing God, but it won't do any good. And the reason why we need to believe God and do things his way is that we live in an age of deception. And that's the key word. I have it highlighted in red on the slide. Of this age. Of this age. We'll be looking at that in Galatians 1.4 in the application. And in this context, the word age uh, literally is a time that we're living in that's deceived and wicked and alienated from God. If you want to turn here, I'm going to cite Romans 12.2, if you want to turn to that. And if you are visiting and didn't bring a Bible, jot it down. We have handouts. You can just jot down the reference. Romans 12.2. And I'm going to cite the Lexham English Bible, where it says, And do not be conformed to this age, using the same word in the Greek, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may approve what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. That's really a very good translation. A lot of people get it wrong. They think there's three wills of God. There's the good one that a lot of people land in, and then there's better ones other people there get there. Then there's the perfect one, and we're going to get that because we're more pious than everybody else. And I heard that decades ago. But the reality is, it's just talking about one will of God, which is revealed, and it's all of those things. It's good, it's well-pleasing, and it's perfect. So it's just the one will of God, which is revealed. It's revealed in Scripture. Now, the word conformed, Conformed is a word that's uh, an imperative, and it has to do with a, like a scheme, schematzo, su schematzo, which is something that would be like molded, made into the image of, or according to the scheme of. So the point is this. The age we live in is powerfully trying to mold us into its own image. You don't have to do anything special to be molded into the scheme of the world. You don't have to do any special thing, but just live to be conformed to this age, Romans twelve two. But God has not called us to be conformed, but transformed. And that happens as we test things and show what the will of God is. 
Let's do a little review from last week. I'll cite this, and then we'll move to the next slide. Remember last week I talked about what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five. Let me cite that again. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time Jesus said, quote, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Don't get the idea that that means the gospel's irrational. The word of God is really foolish. Actually, it's the greatest wisdom of ever that's ever been. But that the world thinks it's foolish. And the wise, the debater, the scribe, the people that had everything going for them, they rejected Christ. They wouldn't listen to him. The Jewish experts in the Gospels didn't listen to him. And then in Acts, Paul went to Mars Hill, debated the great philosophers, the Stoics and Epicureans. And they said, well, we might give you another hearing. Others mocked. Some said, we'll give you another hearing. Very few believed. But really, what's the point of spending all your energy, all your effort, and everything you have to be pleasing to the world that's facing God's judgment? Wouldn't it be much better to know the truth, believe the truth, confess the truth, and allow the world to think there's something wrong with us? Because we have to believe what God said. So Jesus said, these things are hid from the wise and intelligent. Paul said, where are these wise, brilliant people? God will have the final say. Let's go to the last half of that verse. 1 Corinthians 1.20b. The, the title, God exposed the world's folly. How did he do so? Let's read. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Rhetorical answer, applied answer, he has. The world here, Greek word cosmos, we have that transliterated into English, cosmos. And I have a slide that I've shown now and again, but I couldn't find it, so I'll just tell you. When I was studying this in the 70s, from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, there was this World 1, World 2, World 3, all based on cosmos. And so the first use of the word in the Bible is the entire universe, the sum of all created being. The second way it can be used, the context shows us the meaning, the author determines it, the abode of humanity, the theater of history, the inhabited world. The word in the Greek meant a system. But what matters to us is what does it mean here? The third use is the fallen world alienated from God. Now, I'm going to illustrate that. You could be turning to it because in a moment you'll want to be there. And that's uh, John 17, 15, and 16. If you have your Bibles, John 17, 15, and 16. Otherwise, jot it down. I will read it to you. And if you get confused about what's meant, a lot of bad things happen. The cloistered monks of the ages past in Rome, 
their idea was get out of the world and have your little place so you don't get defiled and you're going to be pious in some monastery. So, yeah, they're, they're out of the world as far as they're not interacting with anybody out there in the arena of human affairs. But they didn't really get out of the world because they still believe deception. They still believe it works. Okay, whatever Jesus said, somebody's going to turn it into a system of works. Blessed are the poor. Ah, I know how to be righteous. I'm going to give everything away, take an oath of poverty, and join a monastery. Now I'm blessed. Wait, that's not what that means. Uh, Mike Gendry mentioned this, and it's true. All of the world religions, especially Rome, says do. Do, do, do more, try harder. Prove you're righteous. Here, try all these things. But what does the gospel say? Done. So Jesus wasn't saying, if you really want to be blessed, give everything away and join a monastery. When he confronted people, he confronted their bad motives. The real gospel is believe the promises of God in Christ. Have you found the verses yet? Good. Let's look at world one, world two, world three. John seventeen fifteen. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I'm citing for the New American Standard. So in what sense are they in the world? Same word, cosmos. Jesus, in his prayer, did not ask that the Father take those who believed in him out of the arena of human history. He didn't ask the Father to take believers and disciples and put them somewhere where they never interact with anyone because we're sent out to preach the gospel. Being isolated from everybody doesn't make you more pious. So that's verse 15. So there it means the arena of human history, certainly part of the earth, the creation as well. Verse 16, they are not of the world. Okay, how are they in the world, as we say, and not of the world? They are not those who trust in man. They are not those who are trying to find some way to be pious by their own works. They're not those who are alienated from God because they won't trust in Christ. They are those who belong to Jesus Christ. So God leaves us in the theater of history, the arena of public affairs. We can debate. This this verse here doesn't say you can't debate. You can't get an education. It doesn't say that. We believe the gospel. We say we stay in the world and go into the arena of public debate. But we don't depart from Christ. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world, verse 16. So let me make a statement about this. The wisdom of the world is what the rebellious system of darkness values as wise. 
but it is folly because it is heading toward judgment. If that has an impact on us, it'll change a lot. I realize it's hard for all of us to not fear man. I looked up a verse and and printed out the other day, the, the fear of man brings a snare. We do, as humans, want people to approve of us. And we want to learn social skills, and we want to be kind, and we don't want to give needless offense. But if what motivates us is being approved of by those who hate God, then we have to follow the gospel and not seek the approval of the world. Does that make sense? And the reason we don't want to believe what the world says is it's heading for judgment. Now, Dr. Gordon Fee, I want to honor him, by the way. If we use a scholar, it doesn't mean that we agree with everything this scholar ever said. And if we start thinking that way, we're robbing ourselves of chances to learn. Because I myself was deceived by separatism for five years of my life. I joined a group where people quit their jobs turned in all their money, and thought we got out of the world that way. And one of the ways that we were led into that was through misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians. And my misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians caused a lot of harm in our lives as a family, and I wanted to get it right. And so in 1986, Dr. Gordon Fee published his commentary on 1 Corinthians, and now there's a 2014 update. It was revolutionary to me. Here's what I learned. If you take something that Paul used as irony and take it literally, you get the opposite of what he's saying. Okay? And that's what happened to me. So let me quote Dr. Gordon Fee. He says this, quote, The cross is foolishness, to the perishing, but by means of it, says Fee, God has himself thereby rendered foolish the world's wisdom. Wisdom that belongs merely to the sphere of human self-sufficiency. God has not simply made such wisdom appear foolish by means of the cross, God has actually turned the tables on such wisdom altogether so that it has been made into its very opposite foolishness, end quote, Dr. Gordon Fee in his commentary in 1 Corinthians. Turn the tables. The world has its wisdom. God's wisdom is the cross. Why would God's wisdom be the cross? It's hated. It's shameful. A cruel death. The very Son of God, the very creator of the universe, would be hanging on a cross, mocked by Romans, mocked by Jews. A horrible way to die. But God raised him from the dead. And if the church adopts the world's wisdom, that's very bad. I put a note in here somewhere. Why would anybody believe the seeker movement 
if they believe this. If the world thinks the gospel is foolishness, why would you try to please the world? So we don't have to get out of the world in the sense of the arena of human affairs, but we need to be those who are preaching Christ in the world, but not of it. One more verse. We'll break that one into two sections as well. 1 Corinthians one twenty one a For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. So this is telling us something important. Know in this context means relational knowing. Having a relationship with God. How do we have a relationship with God? Through the wisdom of the world or through the gospel? Through the gospel. If you want to appeal to the world, you come up with do. If you want to believe the gospel, you believe done. Saving knowledge of God, it's on the slide, and this is my statement, is relational and not discovered by sophisticated inquiry. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. There's all sorts of sophisticated approaches to the world of the spirits, to religion, and to various things we might do. But how do we have a relationship with God? How did Abraham come to have a relationship with God? Was Abraham looking for a better religion when he was in the earth of Chaldeas? No, he was fine. God revealed himself to Abraham tangibly and gave him promises. Let's do a preview. If you want to jot this down, I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians three nineteen through 20. This is a preview of something we'll preach whenever I get to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says this, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, quote, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Really, it comes down to this. Has God spoken? Yes, the Bible says he has. Read John 1. I love John 1. And I love Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. John 1, 1 through 18. The claim is God has spoken. And he's done so tangibly. And that God uses human languages through his means to speak meaningful words that we can understand, and they're not determined by our feelings, by our impressions, by religious works. God determines the meaning through using human instruments who wrote them. God has spoken. So how does anyone in this world of deception, of darkness, heading toward judgment, how does anyone ever come to know God. How can it be possible? How can a sinner be saved? How can we avert the wrath of God against sin? How can we know God? Some people said, well, God is so other, it's impossible 
that any language about God is even meaningful. So they throw up their hands in despair. Others say we don't have to know anything. There's a process of spiritual evolution, and we just get with it, and we'll end up part of the whole God in heaven or whatever. That's a lie as well. How do we get out? What does God use? Let's look at the slide of 1 Corinthians 121b. God is pleased to do things his way. What does he use? Gospel preaching. God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Now, let's just look at the context, the author's meaning. Is it actually foolish to preach? No. What he means is this. It is clear. What the world considers foolish, and I think I told you last week, moronic, is that moria moros, or two words in the Greek. One of them is an adjective, the other is a noun. We say moron or moronic in English. That's a little harsh, but folly will work or foolishness will work. Through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. So in the eyes of the fallen, rebellious world that won't listen to God, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about a crucified Jewish Messiah. They don't want to hear what used to be mocked by the liberals as slaughterhouse religion. I don't know if you're very, very elderly, maybe you heard that, but that was the early 20th century, 1920s, 1930s. Harry Emerson Fosdick, and then before him, you know, I'm not remembering all the liberals who invented the idea, but they rejected substitutionary atonement. They rejected that God would send his own son to be crucified, to shed his blood, and that there would be payment made for sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The liberals called that slaughterhouse religion, and they mocked. They mocked. And they said, the good Lord wouldn't send anybody to hell, so don't worry about it. So they create a God from their own imagination. And they devise a message appealing to the fallen world. And frankly, if we're going to speak the truth, we have to be prepared to not be all that popular. We're not purposely trying to offend, but we need to be honest about what the truth is. God is pleased. I love that word too, eudokeo. I put it up there and I print these things out and it's got a whole pile of them. Someday I may look through all of them. But I can now print out every time a word's used, where it's used, how it's translated. Eudokio is a word that uh, means well-pleased. And we'll look at that in our applications. God is pleased through the means of the message, the kerygma is called, and that includes the person and work of Christ. God is pleased to use gospel preaching. Here's a good question. 
Should preachers try to please the world or just do what God said and let him use what he's going to use? Some will say, well, people aren't going to believe that. Precisely. That's why it's called foolishness. Well, then why would anybody be saved? Because God uses it. It's his word. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Preach it. God does the work. And so this word eudokia, by the way, uh, the noun form of it, and this is the verb, is used quite a few times, including Matthew eleven twenty six, that I preached on and I just mentioned. I'm going to make a statement here. Uh, first of all, on the slide, God is pleased to use his means to accomplish his purpose for his glory. God is pleased to use the means revealed in the Bible. Do we believe that? I do. I remember we were doing some evangelism with uh, another group when we were, the group I was with is down on 24th and Nicollet, and there were some well-meaning people, but I don't think they understood the gospel, but they wanted to learn. And so I remember sitting down with this couple, and I said, well, preach Christ. And they said, well, tell them. They were writing it down. What does that mean? Who is Jesus? Is he the son of God? Did he, did he pre-exist? Is he the creator? Tell people who he is. What did he do? He came into this world, lived a sinless life, died for sins. And why do we need him? Because we're headed for judgment, and only the blood of Jesus will ever cleanse our sins. We need to repent and believe the gospel. What does he expect of us? They wrote it down. They wanted to learn. You know, most of what we call evangelicalism can't even define the gospel. And so we just have to, some people want to learn. They're Apollos, learn the way of the Lord more perfectly. Others say, nah, we want to please man. Another quote from Fee, this one I'll, I'll just say part of. Dr. Fee says that God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride, and this constitutes the worship of the creature. The more I study this, and I I study it long, and feel free to ask questions or disagree. If you think you have a better reading, that's possible. But think about this. If all this is true, is it even possible that the seeker-sensitive movement has any validity. If it's true that this is what God uses, the preaching of the gospel, the kerygma, the person and work of Christ, and that the world does believe that it's folly, you're not going to find any seekers. They're all going to go somewhere else. That seems obvious to me, but it doesn't seem obvious to the church growth technocrats, but it can't be right. Now, this doesn't mean there won't be times when a lot of people believe or times when nobody believes, but very few like at Athens, but we just need to be faithful. We don't need to please the world. We need to be faithful. God is pleased 
to use preaching. Do you want God to be pleased? Get the, get the gospel right and proclaim it. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be a genius, but you have to understand it and proclaim it. Let's go to some applications. We must be rescued from this present evil age, and there's only one way out. Do you, if you're hearing this, do you need to be rescued? I do. God is well pleased with the Son and saves those who trust him. Do says, keep working until God's pleased with you. Dunn says, God was never pleased with you, but he's pleased with the Son. Trust in him. And then you have a relationship with God and you're in Christ. Galatians 1, 3 and 4. I just... I preached on through Galatians, I think, in 2013, 2014. But I want to do a little review here because it has this word rescue. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins in order to rescue us from the present evil age. Lexham English Bible. According to the will of God and our Father. What a lot of theology in this little section. It's actually just a salutation, but it's full of theology. Look at that phrase. Gave himself for our sins. What does that mean? There you have substitutionary atonement. The geniuses who rejected slaughterhouse religion Rejected the only means anyone will be saved. The technocrats have said people don't need that sort of thing. They're not interested in it. Harry Emerson Fosdick was popular for that. So you ask them, well, then what's the, what about all these churches? And what about all the pews and the, the Bibles and the hymnals and institutions and missions and seminaries? What's all that for then? If the things that we somebody built these for aren't even true, slaughterhouse religion. Christianity is a helping profession. Help people be more comfortable on their journey through life. And this was way back, but somebody was famous for saying, we'll help you have springs on your buggy. Instead of an old bail wagon, boom, 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 boom. We're going to get leaf springs, and it's going to be smooth sailing. Then you die. But isn't that rejecting the gospel? No, it is about the substitutionary atonement. Behalf of, who pair in the Greek, reveals the truth of the vicarious substitutionary atonement. God sent his son, the sinless one, who died for sins once for all. Rescue in the Greek means literally to take out. That's what I said earlier when citing what it said in John. We're in the world, but not of it. You don't have to join a monastery. You don't have to live in a cave. You have to believe the gospel. He takes us out of the evil age 
so we're not with those on their way with the springs on their buggy heading toward judgment. How many people, if you took a Gallup poll, thinks there's a little literal hell and some, some people are going there? Hardly anybody. If there is a hell, it's only there for Hitler. But that's probably not going to happen either. What does the Bible say? We're facing judgment. The way out is faith in Christ. What is this present evil age? Well, we're rescued out of it. The wickedness of this evil age is such that only God can rescue us out of it. Jesus told Paul that he rescued Paul from hostile Jews and Gentiles to send Paul to preach to us how we could be rescued from the dominion of Satan. That's revealed in Acts 26, 16 to 18. I won't cite that, but jot it down. It's before Agrippa, secular king, he cited what Jesus had said to him and that Jesus had called Paul out of the world to himself to preach forgiveness of sins. Let's look at Matthew 17, 4 and 5. How is it that a fallen sinner, part of this evil age, molded to the world without even doing anything to make that happen? There's a sin nature. How could a lost sinner alienated from God ever find something to please God? And the answer is, it's only Christ. Christ is the only way that we can please God. Now, this is Matthew 17, 4 and 5, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. That's what Peter's idea was. Now, we know from the context it wasn't a good idea. Because while he was still speaking, a bright light cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, quote, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's our word. Listen to him. Now, why Moses and Elijah and then all of this happening. I believe Moses, we know, is the one who predicted that God would raise up a prophet like him. That was in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, And then when he did, we should listen to him. So this is identifying Jesus, the unique one, the only begotten son of God, the eternal son who came into our world and lived a sinless life. It's identifying him is the one who pleases the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is unique. He's the unique one. He's the creator who came into the creation and spoke as the very Son of God. Listen to him. It's the third time. 
in Matthew, uh, you can jot these down. It's the third time in Matthew, Eudokio, well pleased, is used of the Son. Jot these down. Matthew 3.17, For behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom, whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3.17, that was at his baptism. Matthew 12.18, Behold, my servant, with whom I have chosen, which is a citation of Isaiah 42.1, Beloved, with my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Matthew twelve eighteen, well pleased again used in a citation from Isaiah about the Son. Why is it used there? The Pharisees conspired against him because he had declared himself Lord of the Sabbath, he had healed on the Sabbath, and he had issued a call for people to come to him and find rest. I preached on this last week. Come unto me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest isn't work, it's a gift. The irony was, trying to keep Sabbath was more work than an ordinary day. You're Sabbath breakers. Jesus said, I'll give you rest. So, they rejected him. Matthew 11, come to me, I will give you rest. Matthew 12, your disciples are Sabbath breakers. We saw them. They're, they're picking grain. They're not doing what they're supposed to. They're sinners. They aren't doing it right. So Jesus made them even more angry. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You can be the most hardworking, fastidious Sabbath keepers and if you don't come to Christ, you don't have any rest. That's what he said. And then this one. So three times in Matthew, Jesus declared that he is the one, or God declared that Jesus is the one who pleased the Father. One more slide, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper today. The believing ones are saved. 1 Peter 2.6, citation, Isaiah 28.16. 1 Peter 2.6, for it is contained in Scripture, look, I lay in stone, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I've told you that Jesus preexisted as God, and with God, that he came into our world, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he did many miracles to prove he is who he claimed to be. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to many witnesses, and he bodily ascended into heaven. Acts 1, and he's coming again. And those who believe in him 
will never be put to shame. Today, if you haven't believed on Jesus Christ, turn to him, trust him, believe him, and your sins are forgiven because he paid the price, shed his blood to pay the price for all those who trust in him. Trust on Christ. The believing ones are those who are saved. And one more reminder, for Christ also came for, died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is what God is pleased with, faith in his son, not works. <laughs> 